National Archives podcast series, Modern Sources for Immigration. Moving on to my second part, I just want to talk about records relating to aliens, refugees, deportees and internees in the 20th century. Bit of a mouthful there, but we do have records relating to all four of those, those groups. Uh, I'm not going to go into great detail. I'm going to pick a few examples here and there. But basically, if you're interested in looking for general sources, such as immigration policy from the 20th century, there's lots of central government sources, such as the cabinet records, and I'll uh, mention one or two of those later. But really, cabinet records tend to survive around about from 1916 onwards in, in, in the form of cabinet minutes and memorandas, and they survive right up until the present day. Uh, the records are opened 30 years after they've been created. So the most recent cabinet records which we've got on the open shelves, actually online, are cabinet minutes and memorandums from the year 1976. Uh, and as I say, they cover a whole range of subjects, one of which is immigration policy and how that policy has changed over the course of time. Uh, during the 20th century, an awful lot of uh, communities of aliens uh, had a very positive impact on British society. Just to give some examples, there were tens of thousands of Belgian refugees who settled in this country uh, during the First World War, many of whom returned in the 1920s. But in coming across, actually did a lot of important work uh, during the war and shortly after the, the war ended. And certainly during the 1930s and 40s and increasingly after the Second World War, you had similar contributions from Jewish refugees escaping Nazi persecution, Polish workers, particularly after the end of the Second World War, Czechoslovakians who uh, were refugees and again contributed much to British society during the 40s, 50s and 60s. In terms of uh, the negative side of... Uh, aliens in this country. The Home Secretary from 1906 was given the power to deport criminal aliens, criminal and pauper aliens, and we have registers of deportations in the series HO372, which go from 1906 through until the 1960s. So if you want to find out details why perhaps ancestors were deported, the uh, register will provide further details and how the deport deportation order took place, but it would normally relate to a criminal alien or a pauper alien, and again, it was from 1906 that these registers survived. During the 20th century, there were two world wars, at which point uh, aliens were suddenly branded enemy aliens, and we'll look at evidence of re those records among the archives too. Okay, general sources, as I mentioned, if you're looking for high policy uh, records, you really need to look at the cabinet records and prime minister's office records, uh, abbreviated to series CAB and PREM, P-R-E-M, and searchable on the catalogue. Uh, a lot of these records are being put online, particularly cabinet mem minutes and memoranda, uh, but to actually see the details, uh, quite often you need to come and look at the microfilm versions or paper copies here at Kew. But as I say, the Cabinet Minutes and Memorandas are available from 1916 through until 1976. In terms of specific records, the biggest government department, if you're searching for evidence of aliens and immigration, is to look within the Home Office records. So the series all starts with HO for Home Office. 
But it wasn't really just Home Office. Increasingly in the 1930s and 40s, the Ministry of Labour uh, has an awful lot of files relating to immigrants, particularly in providing refugees with skills, uh, training them to actually contribute to whether it be the building of or rebuilding of Britain after the Second World War, but also supporting their education and providing them with hostels and accommodation. So lots of records within files of the Ministry of Labour will lead you to specific groups of Im immigrants or waves of immigrants. And also, and more from the negative aspect, you get records of the Metropolitan Police. Uh, when I say negative aspect, at the start of the First World War, the Aliens Registration Office, as a wartime measure, wanted to get all aliens to register their details and their particulars at the local police offices. So there's a, there's a much more control on the movement of aliens at the outbreak of the First World War. And we'll have a look at some of these records. TNA holds a sample of these records for the London area, so the London metropolitan area only. This is an example of the alien registration card for an alien called Marie Bader. Now, it's quite detailed. It tells you that she was German. She was born on the 9th of September, 1887. Her profession was a dressmaker, and she arrived in the UK in 1908. So this card would have been compiled around about 1914 when the Aliens Act uh, really required all aliens to record their details at local police offices. So we know from this data that she arrived at the age of 21. She was from Erbach in Germany and there's a photograph of her and there's her signature as well. And this was, this was issued at the can't read it, I'm afraid. It's issued at Something Metro. Something Division, T Division Metro, Metropolitan Police. So I don't know where, where T Division is within the Metropolitan Police of London, but it's, let's just say it's Wandsworth, which it probably isn't. But uh, this, this was issued to her. And she would have this registration card, or the registration card would be retained by the police for as long as she remained an alien uh, status, or of alien status. Uh, now, in her case, she, the card was cancelled when she ceased to be an alien, and that was in 1920, because she married a British man, and his name was Arthur Joseph Chalk. And upon marriage, women would take the nationality of their husband. So upon marriage, Marie Bader immediately lost her German nationality and became British. So the card was cancelled. She had all British rights upon marriage. And there are other reasons why people will fall off the register. Obviously if they moved back uh, to the place where they came from, the card would cease to exist. If they died they'd cease to exist. And if they became British the card would be cancelled. As I say women would become British upon marriage if met for men to become British they'd have to take out naturalisation so apply for naturalisation which we'll, we'll look at in a moment. With women of course if her husband, her British husband pre-deceased her, she would automatically become an alien again. So really her nationality was for as long as her, her marriage. So that's an example of a women's card. Women's cards tended to be in, in a red or orange background. And we've got an example, it just so happens that we've got an example within our collection of an alien identity book. Now it's quite unusual for us to have one of these because the identity books would go with the individual. They wouldn't be retained by the police office. And this is the book for, again, this Marie Bader. And again, 
more information is provided. She was five foot five inches. You've got a photograph, you've got a physical description, and you've got an, a present address. In this particular place, uh, she was living in Hammersmith. Okay, now in the 1990s, the TNA uh, acquired um, about 1,100 cases of these alien registration cards relating to the Metropolitan Police or the Metropolitan Area or the London Area. And really, these files should have been destroyed under statute. Uh, they were found in the Home Office and they escaped destruction because they were re-reviewed and a decision was made, I think quite rightly, that these add quite a lot to understanding uh, immigration both from family historians and social historians in the 20th century. And among those that survived uh, is the case of Joseph Coral, who became the bookmaker, Joe Coral. And men's cards had a blue background, and again, the information is very similar on the front. He was born on the 11th of December 1904. He came to Britain at the age of eight with his parents in 1912. And from the age of 16, he'd have been required to get be registered and, and have a registration book and the details registered at the police office. So this card was probably created about 1920 when he was, he was actually this is 1924, but it's around about 1920 when he was over 16 years old. And some cards can extend to about seven, seven or eight, eight cards because whenever you change any of the details on the front, such as your occupation, your address, your marital status, you had to go back to the police and have that information recorded. And you also had to have an up-to-date photograph. So you can see that uh, Joseph Coral changed his photograph on three occasions to indicate the ageing process in this particular case. Uh, there's a young photograph there when he was about 20 years old. And then the latest photograph is probably in his late 50s. And you'll see the card's been struck, striped through with the letters NBS, which stands for Naturalised British Subject. Because I think on something like the sixth uh, attempt, and the card's going to detail, he finally acquired British status in the late 1950s when he was in his mid-50s. And then you can see the back of the card. This, for example, in 1935 records that he was no longer single. He married uh, a British woman, Dorothy Helen Precha, P-R-E-C-H-A. Um, so he, he was married at that time. And it also tells you that earlier on in the 1930s he was fined. He was fined four shillings uh, for failing to notify police authorities of changes to, in this particular case, his business. Uh, and this might have explained why he wasn't successful in his first five attempts of becoming a British subject. These cards, and as I say, there's about 1,000, maybe 1,100 uh, cases, were uh, digitised and uh, you can now download them on our website, on the documents online part of the website. And as I say, you can just search by the name of the alien and download their cards. There is, the, the cards survive from the 1914 right to the end, and they go up to some cases in the 1970s, very few though. The majority of these cases really were around about cards issued in the 1930s, and they tend to relate to a lot of the Central and East European Jewish uh, families who are escaping Nazi persecution. So, for example, you get the case of Ernst Freud and his family, along with lots of other examples of Polish refugees after the Second World War, Hungarian refugees fleeing in 1956 after the invasion of the Russians. Moving on to internees, 
During the First World War and Second World War, enemy aliens were identified and they were put before uh, tribunals and an assessment was made whether they were of a danger to Britain. Uh, in that case, they were interned or whether they were not of a danger. In that case, they were allowed to continue to live, you know, as it were, uh, freely and openly. Very little survives from the First World War tribunal cards. Most of these were destroyed under statute in the 1930s, but much more survives in the Second World War, both from individuals and from a perspective of, of the camps in which they were interned into. For the First World War, as I say, very, very little survives. Uh, this is quite interesting in the sense that uh, it's an example of a file about interned camps during the uh, First World War. This is correspondence from a camp which was set up in Islington in North London, and it's basically a case from the people who were interned there to have their own photograph taken, because there was evidence that a, a photograph had been taken of those who had been interned on the Isle of Man, and this is the actual photograph of enemy aliens interned on the Isle of Man in 1916, so I'm not sure whether the Islington camp won their request to have a photograph of themselves, but that's what all the file is about. Most of the people in the First World War were interned in camps set up in London, uh, Alexandra Palace, for example, uh, one in Islington, but many were also set up on the Isle of Man, as they were in the Second World War too. As I say, there is very little on uh, individuals who were assessed for internment. There is one document in the series HO144, which is available in the Research Inquiries Room, which does provide uh, lists of names of people who were assessed, but in the end who weren't interned during the First World War. Second World War, as I say, much different. A lot more survives. In fact, all the what we call the index cards for internees survive for the Second World War. Basically, the war declared on the 3rd of September, and there were some 70,000 UK residents, Germans and Austrians, in Britain. And they immediately, overnight, became classified from aliens to enemy aliens. And by the 28th of September, the Aliens Department of the Home Office had set up internment tribunals throughout the country, which was headed by government officials and local representatives, such as magistrates. And they would examine every UK registered enemy alien over the age of 16, and the object was to divide them into three categories. Category A was that they would be interned in camps. Category B was that they'd be exempt from internment, but subject to restrictions. And category C was that they would be exempt from all internment and all restrictions. And this is an example of someone who was exempt from all uh, restrictions and internment. And this is, the, uh, this is the case of Arthur Wiedenfeld, who went on to become a publisher with uh, his partner Nicholson, and he actually came across as a Jewish refugee in the 1930s from Austria. So even though he was German, he clearly was of no threat, and he was actually escaping the persecution of the Nazis. So in his case, and in many cases, many thousands of cases, immediately there was a decision not to intern. And on the reverse of this card, it says very clearly, is a Jewish refugee, and it also goes on to say that works in the BBC likely to be of you know, use to the British war effort. And that's what happened. He was exempt from internment. And in these cases where a decision was made not to intern, all these cards have been digitised and are available to search and download on the Moving Here website, uh, movinghere.org.uk. And there's a search engine like all websites, and you just type in Arthur Wiedenfeld, and then you just download for free his particular card. However, 
not everybody were exempt from internment. And by February 1940, all the tribunals have completed their work, and the vast majority, 66,000, were like Arthur Wiedenfeld and were classed in Category C, and they were not interned. That's 66,000 of, of 73,000 cases. So for the remaining uh, 7,000, they were either interned or put under some sort of uh, you know, system where there was, the, there was a restriction on movement. However, a year later, well, a few, few months later, by May 1940, with the German invasion, the risk of it extremely high, all of a sudden a decision was made to intern all those uh, Germans and Austrians who were resident in the southern strip of England. So having, having not interned them uh, a few months earlier, all of a sudden they were immediately interned. And then Italians were also considered for internment following the Italy's decision to, 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 to declare war on Britain in June 1940. So more and more people returned. Lots of pressure were put on the camps, and their policy was to actually intern people overseas. So you'd, you'd get internees going to uh, Canada and Australia and New Zealand. Uh, that policy was, was suddenly stopped uh, in July 1940, uh, when the Aaron Star which was carrying uh, internees, was torpedoed, and 712 Italians and 438 Germans who were on board, uh, half of them lost their lives, along with the 300 British seamen and soldiers who were, who were with them at the time. And it was really after event, that event that public opinion and sympathy swayed towards the enemy aliens. You know, people who'd be living a relatively normal life, who, through no fault of them, their own, their lives were suddenly changed on the 3rd of September when war was declared. And in late 1940, more and more Category C and B uh, enemy aliens uh, were reviewed and more and more people were released. And very few people were still in internment camps by 1942. This is an example of somebody who was interned. It's actually uh, a card relating to someone called Eric Wolf Friedrich Israel Kahn, who was a, an artist and he became a war artist. He did lo lots of paintings when he was in the Isle of Man, where he was interred. And you see the card's very similar to Arthur Wiedenfeld. It tells you the date and place of his birth, his nationality, his police registration number, so you could go to see whether there's a police card for him, his home office reference number. Take a note of that number, K18836. We'll come to that in a second. It tells you his address, his, his, his occupation, so he was an artist. And it tells you that in 1939, a decision was made not to, not to intern this, this person. And then, a few months later, he was interned in 1940, but he was released in 1941. This particular card isn't available on moving here. Where a decision was made to intern people, uh, the records are available on microfilm at Q. And that's because, on the reverse of the card, there's a decision that explains why the decision was made to intern and it's possible that the information on the reverse of the card should still remain closed so it's not as open as the information on the front of the card so that's why they aren't uh, they haven't been digitized uh, in, in the same way as the other cards have been uh, that number I gave you which was k18836 this is every Every alien who came into Britain in the 1930s and 40s, a case file was created for them, and the first letter of that case file, K, corresponded to the surname of the, the alien, in this particular case, Khan. So that number you saw on his alien's internment card, K18836, 
type that into our catalogue in the reference box, press the return button, you then see that there is a Home Office file all about Eric Khan. So not just about his internment time, about anything about him from his arrival in Britain to, in this particular case, his naturalisation, which happened in 1959. So 20 years of information about Eric Khan. As such, these records are closed for 100 years, unless you can prove that the individual is deceased, or if the person was born more than 100 years ago. Uh, if it says closed in the catalogue, you can follow the prompts and request for a file to be reviewed. Uh, and I did this for Eric Kahn, and the file was opened mainly because he, uh, I could prove that he actually had died. So it's a whole different series, and just bear it in mind, it's, it's HO405. These records are gradually coming from the Home Office. Uh, we have them all for surviving for, for people with surnames from A right through to O. If you have an ancestor or someone who's an alien that you're interested in, whose surname begins with P through to Z, you'll need to contact the Home Office to get access to those records. Eventually they will all come to us, but they're still in the process of coming across. And if you haven't done one of these before, uh, putting through an FOI request, as I say, you follow your prompt, the prompts on the screen, you put down your details and email, and you just ask for the file to be reviewed and provide as much information as possible, which may assist the reviewers in making that decision, such as, I can prove that this person died, and here is, a, here is the obituary, etc. All right, finally, finally, in terms of internment, I just wanted to uh, let you uh, know about this record. It's HO213-1053. It's just a particular record, but what it is actually is a photograph album of internee camps set up on the Isle of Man. And it's a very detailed photograph album uh, following a Home Office inspection of the camp in the 1940s. And if you're interested in internees or internment camps, the particular record is very uh, illustrative in, in really explaining what life was like for an internee. And they had their own industries, and this was a glove-making industry. So you can see three women there knitting away. Okay, finally, in the last five minutes, I just want to talk to you about records relating to naturalisation and citizenship. And these are very much the third part and final part of my talk, which are records relating to those people who went on to become British. And it has to be said, the vast majority of uh, aliens resident in this country did not go on to become British. And that's because it was a very expensive process. Only the rich could afford it. Even though it was simplified in 1844, it was still quite a uh, quite an expensive process. And you needed to get lots of people to actually support your case to become British. So those people who did become British tended to be people who wanted to have a stronger position in, I don't know, local politics or, you know, perhaps they wanted to expand their business or compete more with others and they felt that they could only do this if they actually became British. So let's just look in the final five minutes at some records relating to naturalisation and how you access these records. Firstly, there are two types of records. Memorial records tend to be the application for naturalisation uh, with great detail about the individuals who are trying to become British. And certificate records are really copies of certificates which were issued to successful applicants. And the copies were retained by the Home Office and are here in the National Archives. Uh, we also have 
from 1948 registrations of British citizenship. These were issued to British people who were resident in colonies and dominions. So they had British status, but when they came to Britain, they needed to register their British citizenship. And there are some three million of these records here in Kew. So very quickly, law of nationality. Until 1844, to become British, you had to take out a private act of parliament. You know, not many of these cases survive. Private acts of parliament are actually kept at the parliamentary archives. We have some correspondence and home office records, but you know it was a, you need to be very rich to actually to do that. And there's also things called denization, which the king would or the, the, the monarch, or, yeah, the king would would grant uh, rights to aliens who were denized. It wasn't the full, you know, it didn't have the full benefits of becoming British or becoming naturalised, but it allowed you to, to own property uh, but not necessarily pass that property or land on to, to other generations. But the main things changed in 1844 when it became much simpler, much easier to become British because all you had to do, it sounds so easy, was to apply in writing to the Home Secretary and he or she, or he actually, uh, would then uh, carry out an investigation to see whether you were a suitable uh, candidate. And here are the indexes, printed indexes to naturalizations for the 19, well, this is the 1800s. Uh, until a few years ago, you had to consult these indexes to see whether we have either memorial records or certificates. It's largely been superseded. All this information is now on the catalog. Uh, you just type in the name of the person you're searching, and hopefully that will indicate whether there was a naturalization paper or not. Word of warning, just type in the name of the individual. Use the word and in between, so just say the name was Michael Marks, put down Michael and Marks, and then put down and naturalization, and that will then restrict your search to just Michael Marks who were naturalized. So memorial records, basically uh, memorial records consist of an application from the individual explaining why he wished to become a British, and it has to be backed up by British people, so British referees. Uh, this is an example of someone called Michael Marks who wished to become British. British. He applied to the uh, Home Secretary in the 1880s and this is his resident referee, so it's a British person called Thomas Spencer who's basically confirming that this man is more than suitable to become British, apart from anything else, he is his, his business partner. So if you haven't worked this out, this is the case of Marks, as in Marks and Spencer. So application by Marks, supported by Spencer. And it was a very successful application, so he got you know, people to support his case who were upstanding and respected citizens in the local community who were law-abiding. But from the 1870s and 80s, uh, there was also a, an independent uh, assessment carried out by the local police or constabulary, in this case the mayor of Wigan, uh, or, or, or the constabulary for Wigan, would actually carry out an investigation. So they'd check not just the application by Michael Marks, but to see whether all of the people who provided information uh, about him were respectable, and they all were, and that's a case where he received British nationality. Around about the same time, there's another Marx. This particular one is the case of Karl Marx, who applied to become British in 1874. And what's on the screen now is the damning piece of evidence which meant that his application was refused. And it says here from the Metropolitan Police, with reference to the above, Karl Marx, I beg to report you that he is the notorious German agitator, the head of the International Society and an advocate of communistic principles. This man has not been loyal to his own king and country. So the Home Secretary took a view that on the basis of this particular uh, evidence, 
his application was denied, and indeed it was. It's very unusual for us to have copies of refused applications. Uh, you know, I don't know more than about five or six, to be honest with you, for this period, and Karl Marx was no doubt chosen because uh, he was the notorious Karl Marx. Uh, but we do tend to hold the vast majority of papers, probably less than three or four percent don't survive. We hold all certificates, and all certificates are in the series HO334, and very briefly, on the screen now you'll see a copy of a certificate for Ernst Freud in 1939. As I say, we've got his uh, alien card, his registration card in NEPO 35. Well, he wasn't interned. To become naturalised, you had to have lived in the UK for five years. You couldn't put in an application before then. And it just so happened that Ernst Freud and his family arrived in 1934 they applied for naturalisation and they got it in 1939. And you can see that this one was was uh, was granted on the 30th of August 1939, so four days before the outbreak of war. Now, had it not been granted, possibly the whole family, if they lived in the south of England, may have ended up in an internment camp. But these records are all open, as I say, they're all in HO334, and information such as name, place and date of birth, uh, nationality... Um, occupation. Ernst Freud was an architect. And then names of parents, and in this case Sigmund Freud and Martha Freud are identified as his parents. And the last example is of Philip Mountbatten. His naturalisation certificate was in 1947 and he needed to become British to marry a future monarch. Uh, and so he was naturalised a few months before he was married. And you'll see in the top left-hand corner, it says Home Office Number. Everyone who was alien had their own number. And this is G. And you might think, well, what's the relevance of G if his name was Philip Mountbatten? Well, G stood for Greek, because he was a Greek prince. And he's given a six-digit number, 35486. So we, we could have his aliens papers, but if you type G35486 in on the catalogue, it tells you that the records do not survive. So not, not all of the aliens' papers actually survive, and this is one particular one that doesn't. Uh, and very, very lastly, I mentioned briefly that in 1948, the British Nationality Act paved the way for lots of colonial and migrant workers to come across to Britain to uh, become to settle in Britain and uh, become by, to, to, to take up British jobs and help rebuild Britain. And in order to do that, uh, they needed to register their British nationality and we get lots of uh, emails and requests for copies of these, and they're in HO334, and there's about two to three million of people who were British, but who were resident and born in former colonies and dominions before independence. And there are, in fact, two to three million of registrations held here. Unfortunately, there are no name indexes. All the name indexes are actually kept still by the Home Office, because the records are still technically in use. And this is an example of a registration index. And unless you know the registration index, it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult to come to the National Archives and to identify the registration. So the advice is to contact the Liverpool Nationality Office uh, of the Home Office, which is based obviously in Liverpool in a place called Water Lane, and identify the certificate number or registration number. And with that, you can then contact the National Archives and a copy of the certificate can be sent to you or looked at and a copy of the certificate or registration is now in front of us. 
But that's it. Uh, there's always one thing at the end. Uh, never forget census returns. If you're looking for aliens in the 19th century, quite often the census enumerators form is amended and then the details are submitted and they use initials such as NBS, which indicates naturalised British subjects. So you can do lots of searches on the Ancestry and TNA uh, websites and Genes Reunited. Just type in NBS and you can get your own lists of of uh, aliens who settled within within Britain. Thank you very much. This event was recorded live on October the 23rd, 2007 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Roger Kershaw. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved. <laughs>